Welcome to the Next Level Human Podcast. As a human, you have a job to do. In fact, you have four jobs. To earn and manage money, to attain and maintain health and fitness, to build and sustain personal relationships, to find meaning and make a difference. None of these jobs are taught in school. And that is what this podcast is designed to do to educate us all on living our most fulfilled lives through the mastery of these four jobs. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Tita, and I believe we are here living this life for three reasons and three reasons only, to learn, to teach, and to love. In this podcast, I will be learning, teaching, and loving right along with you. I'm grateful to have your company. Here's to our next level. All right, everybody, welcome to today's show. So I have a guest today who I'm meeting for the first time. Matter of fact, we just met about three minutes ago as we connected onto the platform here. This is Dr. Matt uh, Latt, rather, Mansur. So L-A-T-T Mansur, uh, PhD. I, I uh, he, By the way, uh, Latt is suffering from a little bit of a cold, so um, he let me know that as we popped on. So he, he may have a little bit of a, a cough. But one of the reasons I got excited. We got hooked up by uh, Chase Tuning, who's a mutual uh, friend of ours, um, who oftentimes suggests people for this podcast. And one of the reasons I got excited about talking to you, Lad, is because when I looked at your, uh, you know, sort of areas of expertise, I was just like, oh, this is my man. Like he's he's got deep understanding in metabolism, in chronic disease, in psychology. He's a he's an expert in uh, ketones and exogenous ketones. The list goes on and on and on. But one of the things that uh, I wanted to do with Lat is just discuss deep dive metabolism. Here we have a PhD who has studied this stuff, who deep dives into this stuff all the time and is looking at it at a very high level in the research. And so why not um, discuss that? So Lat, thank you so much for being here, for taking time out to talk to the Next Level Human podcast. Just to let you know, most of the people on this podcast are pretty uh, advanced fitness enthusiasts. A lot of them are clinicians. Um, so it's going to be a really fun time for them to get, you know, sort of your expertise and ha have us have this discussion. But to start out, why don't you just give us sort of a brief into your background, how you got into this work, what your interests are, and then we can go from there. Sure. I thank you very much, Jade, for having me on your podcast. Um, looking forward to this as well, because prior to this, um, I did look at your website and I, I did see your area of expertise in metabolism, as well as your hands-on experience in training people. Because what I do is what we discover in the lab, what we investigate from a mechanism point of view. But what you do is essentially putting that knowledge and information in application and actually see it working on different, you know, individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely very excited to hear your opinion on certain things and your experience in, in, in applying these knowledges. So in terms of background, I am currently the research lead of HVMN Health via Modern Nutrition. I am in charge of um, all the R&D research collaborations with universities, institutions. I'm also the principal investigator of our $6 million um, DOD grant uh, contract to look at exogenous ketones 
in uh, humans looking at physical and cognitive performance, especially in hypoxia, which means low oxygen um, environment. And that brings me to my PhD, which was essentially my research um, doing cardiac metabolism in type 2 diabetic heart in hypoxia. So I use hypoxia as a subset of ischemia, which is um, you know lack of blood flow or occlusion of, of the artery, and that leads to usually um, myocardial infarction, which is heart attack. So that's my PhD in, um, from University of Oxford in physiology, anatomy, and genetics. And prior to that, I was working for a pharmaceutical company in clinical operations based in New Jersey. That was right after my master's. I did my master's in biotechnology uh, from Columbia University in New York. That was my first time in the US. Um, and my undergrad was from University of Nottingham uh, in the UK, also in biotechnology. Um, and originally I'm from Malaysia, born and bred. I didn't leave the country until I was 20. So that was my first time abroad, went to UK, went to US, back to UK for my PhD. Well, actually I went to Germany first, worked for a year for the pharmaceutical company, and then went back to school in the UK, um, just because the PhD in UK takes three years, whereas in the US it takes longer than that. So I decided to go back there. Well, Lat, we're really, really lucky to have someone of your caliber on the show. One of the things I love about, um, you know, the PhD researchers, the ones that are on the ground doing the research, is that we don't oftentimes get a chance to talk to them. And yeah. one of the first things I want to ask you about is uh, this idea, because one of the things that happens is when we're dealing with someone like Lat and other PhDs who are on the ground sort of doing the research, and then that research goes into the journals, then those journals come out to clinicians and the public. And especially the media, this stuff has to get translated from the yep. researchers who are doing it into the people who are using it on the ground. And oftentimes a lot gets lost in that uh, translation. And so one of the things that I want to ask you just right off the bat, and maybe uh, you can give us some pointers and tidbits about this is when you as a researcher, uh, when you look at this stuff, how how would you. Uh, do you think it's a problem, this translation problem, the fact that people are getting things wrong? Uh, if you do think it's a problem, how how would you suggest that clinicians like myself and uh, the lay public begin to look at research? And to kind of get you started on this, I'll just give you a couple of my pet peeves that you may or may not uh, agree with, which is just fine. I love when we kind of get into this. One of my pet peeves is the fact that um you know, individuals who are not used to or understand the science will often mm -hmm. allow their bias, what they yeah. what works for them or what they mostly read to determine their, uh, you know, opinions. And then those opinions mm -hmm. turn into identities and then those identities yeah. become, you know, a situation where we're battling each other. And this yeah. has always sort of bothered me. And I wonder how you as a researcher sees this and what insights and sort of tips you can give us around this idea of what happens from the research to the translation to the clinics and everyone else? Yeah, that's that's an amazing question. And I'm glad you brought that up as well, because I think during my master's um, period, when I was doing my master's, I think that was when I realized there is a disparity, there's a disconnect between academia and industry and application and, and to the general public. And that was when I realized what I like to do. I want to find a job where I can bridge essentially the knowledge from academia to the general public because I don't want to just stay in the lab all my life and just you know doing all this cool science you know discovering cool stuff and coming up with 
the best you know mechanism of action of certain drugs and get a Nobel Prize. Like while that is super cool, I feel like there's like you said, there's a lot that is being lost in translation. And right now, I am you know I would say so far I'm I'm very very happy where I am because I get to do science. I get to um, still conduct all these studies and also talk with all these researchers. But at the same time being on podcasts like this to be able to convey that knowledge and information to the general public. So in terms of tips, what I would say is always go into a research or I mean, always read a research with an open mind, right? As you said, do not let your biasness cloud your judgment or let your biasness cloud the way you read the research. And a lot of these research, especially when it comes to metabolism, there's a lot of nuance that's involved. What's the difference in gender? What's the difference in age? What's the difference in protocol? Now, for our area, for example, exogenous ketones is still very, very new. So when it's so new, there are multiple types of protocols that people employ in order to test whether these exogenous ketones work whether it works in acute setting, in pre-workout setting, whether it works in post-workout recovery setting, there are multiple ways to test it. And there are certain, there are multiple papers that showed either, okay, there's positive um, results. Some papers show that there's no positive results, but there's not detrimental results either. And what you want to do then is to go in, dig deep in that into that paper and look at the different protocols, the different populations that they use, the different um, methods that they use. For example, some people, uh, some studies, they, they fast their athletes. Some people, they, the athletes are fully fed. Um, you know, what sort of environment do you want to employ for your personal use? Mm. You know, you have to ask yourself, is this paper's protocol uh, suiting my personal preference? Is this reflective of my daily usage of a certain product or my daily lifestyle changes that I want to employ? Mm. So I think that's the most important. Like, go, don't let your mind tell you, okay, I believe X, Y, Z is useful for my health. Therefore, I'm just going to Google X, Y, Z, good for health. Because then, then you will find everything under the sun that says X, Y, Z is good for health. You want to say X, Y, Z and say Alzheimer's. Don't say good or bad. You literally put the word and. That's one trick I use for my, during my PhD is literally do to, you know, use two terms. So for example, my PhD was in diabetes and cardiovascular disease, right? So I said diabetes and cardiovascular disease. I did not say diabetes increase risk of cardiovascular or diabetes uh, causes cardiovascular because that primes your question to Google. And that, that basically frames your frame already. So Google would feed you the information that will reaffirm that. And when you reaffirm that, um, you will, like you said, you turn into opinion, opinion turn into identity, and then you run with it. Um, what I want is completely biased. I want the positive, the negative. Okay, some people say maybe diabetes causes uh, cardiovascular disease. Some people say it just increases the risk. Some people say it has nothing to do. Okay, go in there. Why does why do they say it has nothing to do with cardiovascular disease? You know, sort of look into a bigger picture. I think as us, you know, clinicians or scientists or practitioners, it's our obligation to really go into the literature and dig deep as well as understanding the big picture and not just want, narrow it down to one mechanism or one pathway because metabolism yeah. is complicated. 
incredibly complicated. And um, I, I really like that answer. And one of the things I want to run by you that as a clinician, I feel like is truth. But I, I want to know, do you feel it's truth as a researcher? Because you may not. One of the things that I feel is uh, something that I was constantly running into in the clinic is that when I applied one protocol or one piece of knowledge to one person, I might get an outcome. And if I did the same thing to a different person, I wouldn't get the same outcome. And as I practiced and practiced, then I would say I would start to recognize, well, certain groups seem to do well with certain things uh, and certain groups don't seem to do well with certain things. But even within those groups, there seem to be variation. And so one of the things that I have as, you know, I would say one of my laws that I always try to remember is that each person is unique metabolically. And so from my perspective, I would say something along the lines of, and I want the expert you to kind of say, yeah, Jade, I would agree with that. or I don't disagree with that. Or I somewhat agree with that. And here's some things to look after. From my perspective, I go, well, we're each as different on the inside chemically as we are on the outside physically. And I feel like this uh, presents challenges for the research. It certainly presents challenges for clinicians. And one of the things I've always thought as I've gone along, is that research is definitely a tool for averages and, and very, very important, but it sometimes doesn't always translate to the individual. And so when you hear me say that, how does that hit you? Is that something you would say, I agree with that, or I don't agree with that, or Jade, you might want to look at it this way. I'm just curious how you see this individual variation that shows up for me clinically and how it translates for you in the research. Yeah, I'm, I mean, personalized medicine, right? Um, I've, I've started, you know, we, we had to write essays about personalized medicine even during my master's time in 2008. So during that time, I mean, people already realized this inter-individual variability and it's true. Like your research cannot possibly capture everything that can be applied across the board. It's impossible. Right. Because as a population, we have all these genetic variabilities. We have these differences in phenotypes, genotypes that essentially affect how we live our lives, how we develop as we age. And if we have dysfunction, how we are going to, how, how are we going to treat, um, these dysfunction? So I 100% agree with you that that's why when you take research, you have to take it with a grain of salt. And again, go back to the protocol. What sort of what sort of population are you are you looking at? For example, if these athletes they are if they are doing experiments on twelve athletes and they're all males and they're all between twenty and thirty, and if you are you know a postmenopausal woman, then clearly like this will not directly translate to you. You may want to try it trial you know just trial and error and see how your body reacts to the protocol, but it does not necessarily. Is not going to superimpose onto your lifestyle and your age group and your population and demographics. So that's that. And then, as you said, like our body is is very sophisticated chemically, and it's very different and unique. You know, differing from one person to another, and so therefore, whatever approach that you employ has to also be tailored to a certain extent to the individual or or the group, you know, as you said. Um, and I think a very great example is, you know, the brain. And in psychiatry, for example, you can have the exact same symptoms and given the exact same uh, medications and treatment, 
and one person could get better and the other person could have a complete different outcomes. That just shows how, even though with the same symptoms, with the same hallmarks of dysfunction, you can still have such variability in the chemical and biochemical inside and therefore reacting differently to the treatment, to the lifestyle change and to the different small molecules or, or drugs that you, you um, administer. Yeah, I, I, I really like that question. I'm glad to see that there's agreement there between us. It's, it's kind of cool to see a researcher say, yeah, we see these individual differences all the time. And, and the way I see it, and I just want to see if you have any other areas individual that we should look at. I see it as like we're unique in our physiology, right? We're unique in our psychology. We're unique in our personal preferences in terms of what we like and don't like. And we're unique in our sort of practical circumstances. You know, some of us live in food deserts. Some of us have access to whole foods, things like that. Is, yeah. Are there any other areas that you would say that we have differences in as well, other than those sort of four buckets that you would say, oh, we want to look at this as well. You know, we got our physiology, our psychology, our, our preferences and our practical circumstances. Uh, what other areas are there perhaps, or does that kind of encapsulate it? I think, I think you basically encapsulated it um, all in all, because for me, I think uh, uh, on an individual level, there is, you know, obviously the physical and the mental aspect, which you, you already said, and then there is the preference, right? And, and what you prefer to eat, what you, what your body prefers to. Now, this is the difference, right? What you prefer to eat may not be what your body prefers to metabolize. Hmm. So that's also another thing, another process for us to learn about ourselves. So, um, I learned this, you know, personally that a lot of research, they don't apply to me 100%. It may apply like 80%, 90%, but I have to do little tweaks. For example, you know, I see people who, um, or see studies who feed the athletes multiple times a day and that increases metabolism. But for me, what works best is, um, OMAD or intermittent fasting where I eat, um, within a small window of time. And that works really well for me. And it gives me energy still, um, for my workouts and, and my activities and, and, um, I still have that cognitive ability and not feel sluggish and, and fatigued. Um, and then practical, you know, like you said, like what are your restraints when it comes to um, practicality? If you have access to a gym, if you have access to a home gym, if you, if you literally can't move, you know, all day because you have to be in customer service, um, you know, stuck in the chair for eight hours. Um, so I think those four areas, you, you basically highlighted it very, very nicely. Yeah. Um, I can't, I can't think of anything um, you, beyond that. You said two things that are really intriguing to me in that you know, sort of uh, discussion. One of the things you said is that um, if you take you, for example, you seem to thrive off of one thing while other athletes sort of thrive off the other. And, you know, so that's just sort of a repeat of what we said. But then you said something really interesting was how you got went about, um, you know, sort of uh, deciding what was working for you. And you brought up what I would call, you know, biofeedback sensations, right? It's like, is my, is my mood stable? Uh, is my energy, um, you know, high and in my focus, is my mood good? Is my hunger under control? Am I having excess cravings? And it seems like, and I oftentimes use this term that in a sense, um, you know, Dr. Lat is using these biofeedback sensations to decide for himself whether the OMAD system, and for those who don't know, that's the one meal a day type of intermittent fasting approach would work 
for him. So it sounds like what you're saying is like, okay, Jade, like I'm aware of the research on intermittent fasting and, you know, um, alternate day diets or the OMAD approach. I'm also aware on, you know, uh, you know, many feedings throughout the day. Um, and then I can kind of go into that and say, well, I do best on this because in a sense, you're doing almost a clinical evaluation on yourself by looking at how uh, you respond to this. So that's the first yeah. thing. And then the other thing I think that was really interesting that I want to get your your take on is that you also talked about the idea that I might, uh, you know, have a personal preference towards what I want to eat. But then when we go down and look at the metabolism and what is going on in our physiology as a result of that personal preference, just because I like something and I like to do something where I feel, um, you know, <coughs> are drawn to that, like, let's say the keto diet or whatever, does not necessarily mean that that diet is doing what we want physiologically. And, and I think those two points you made uh, are important points. And I just kind of want to get a sense of how you see that, because the way I see it is like, OK, you know, in a sense, we're looking, listening to Dr. Ladd. He's essentially saying, look, you can be aware of the research um, and all the different ways of eating. And then you essentially choose one, maybe because you're drawn to it, maybe because someone told you about it. But then you have to decide whether it works for you or not. And it sounds like that's going to be how you feel, which I guess we can learn a little bit about. And it also is going to be about what is happening in your physiology. And we do, I guess, have now some tools that we can look inside that. But if you could talk a little bit about how that you think that would work for an individual, because, you know, we have a lot yeah. of people that do keto diets and I've seen them work wonderfully for some people, not yeah. so great for others. Intermittent fasting mm -hmm. I've seen work wonderfully for some, horrible for others. And I want to kind of see yeah. your take on that. Yeah, um, great point. And that's why I, you know, in all podcasts that I'm on, I always tell people, go out there and trial and error. Like literally just start doing and try it and give time, you know, just doing it for three days for a diet. Like, and then you're like, oh, there's no results or no difference. It, it, you have to be realistic. You have to let your body adapt to a different lifestyle in order to really validate whether or not it works, right? So... I, I always tell people that no one knows your body better than you do. Like you are the PhD of your own body. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, whatever information that you get throughout the day, when you do a lifestyle change, when you do a diet change, you will be able to determine if this is good for you. Now that is assuming that our body feedback, our biology feedback system is functional, healthy. Right. There are also times where it's dysfunctional, where there, we think we're getting feedback, but it's actually the wrong feedback. And, you know, for example, sugar craving, even though we are um, not actually craving sugar. And that's when um, monitoring devices come in handy. So, for example, continuous uh, um, glucose monitors, um, you'll be able to see, OK, I eat this X food. And it does this to my blood glucose. And then you correlate that back to how you feel. Do you feel bad? Do you feel good? Do you feel sluggish? Do you feel energetic? You can then correlate that. So that gives us a check and balance point. Because when we talk about feel and, you know, biofeedback, it's very subjective. What is considered good? You know, that's where expertise, experts like yourself, Jade, uh, come in handy 
where people can consult you. Is like, okay, this is how I feel. Is this how I, I'm supposed to feel? Is this supposed to be good? I'm feeling, you know, lightheaded, kind of like buzzy, you know, when you're on keto diet, they feel like when they have the ketones for the first time, they're like, okay, okay, I feel a bit weird. It's not normal. Is this unhealthy? Am I low blood sugar? Am I, you know, at the risk of having hypoglycemia? Uh, whereas other people say, no, that, that's, you know, that's how you should feel. And this is the, the light feeling that, that you have that cognitive benefit of ketones, for example. So it's, it's very difficult and it's a very gray area that nobody has a scale one to 10 to tell you, this is how you should feel. And this is what, you know, it is definition wise. So that's why it's, it's very important to check in with your clinicians, check in with your trainers, check in with, you know, uh, your peers, even if, if you have friends who are going through the same process, like check in with them. It's like, Hey, you know, I'm, I've been doing this you know, for a while, is this how you feel? I want to jump in real quick and tell you about one of my favorite new products. And to start out, I want to ask you a question. If you had to follow your friends around who are not the healthiest in the world and see what they are doing, what would be the number one thing you would probably tell them to do to start? For most people, that's going to be drinking more water, right? This is something that we talk about all the time in health and fitness. It's almost as if we think of it as an afterthought now because obviously water is so crucial. However, we oftentimes get this wrong. For example, did you know that when it comes to hydration, just drinking water can make things worse? Most people don't know this. Why? Partly because most people are over drinking water and under consuming the electrolytes that help water do its job. What we don't realize is that hydration is not just about water. It's about electrolytes, the minerals in there, as well as getting that water into the cells. And so you do not want to be over consuming water if you're not getting your electrolytes right. And this opens up a whole new discussion because most people are not getting their electrolytes right. For example, did you know that low sodium, too low sodium is an issue? Just as much, if not more so, than high sodium. In other words, what we want if we're going to get the right electrolytes is to get the right amount of sodium and potassium and magnesium in the Goldilocks zone. We don't want too much. We don't want too little. We want it just right. This opens up a whole other thing here too because people who are exercising, doing sauna therapies, doing low-carb diets are disrupting and losing lots and lots of their electrolytes. For example, when insulin is not around in low-carb diets, you will excrete lots of sodium. In other words, under that state, exercising, low-carb diets, all these things, you actually need more sodium. And so if you're somebody who has been just drinking water, not paying attention to electrolytes, and also feeling fatigued, feeling like you're underperforming, not sleeping right, getting cramps, twitches, headaches, any of these things, then you are probably dealing with an electrolyte issue. This is where the product element comes in. This product has been a game changer for me and many, many of my patients and clients. This is a rehydration electrolyte beverage, basically. It is a powder 
of electrolytes formulated with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams magnesium without the added sugar and other nonsense that comes in beverages like Gatorade. This stuff is basically a rehydration beverage on steroids. It is the thing that is going to replenish your electrolytes in the right ratios, decrease fatigue, really correct chronic dehydration. And by the way, many people are dehydrating themselves, becoming hyponatremic, low sodium, when they're consuming too much water. You need your electrolytes on board, especially if you are someone who is losing lots of sodium and other electrolytes through low-carb diets and lots and lots of exercise. This is where Element comes in. Element is a new sponsor to the Next Level Human podcast. I cannot recommend this product enough. I have been using this stuff for months now, and I have immediately seen changes in my energy levels. I feel like I'm operating on a whole other level, and I have seen this as being the primary thing that people who have been using Element have been telling me that their fatigue is getting better, especially fatigue that comes after very intense workouts that involve lots of sweating and lots of intense output from the nervous system. Please check out Element. Use the code next level, drinkelement.com. That's D R I N K L M N T dot com drinkelement.com and let's get back to the show yeah I, lo- I love that and one of the ways that i do it um and and maybe you can uh either say yeah that that's a great way to do it jade or or maybe uh add something to this i oftentimes go from my perspective as a clinician i say look if your biofeedback sensations are feeling good i actually have a little acronym i use called schmeck s-h-m-e-c sleep hunger mood energy and cravings and so i say if your schmeck is in check That's one subjective biofeedback sort of place where you can say, okay, this might be working. Then at that point, if we're talking diet and things like that, then I go, is your body composition also Mm -hmm. attaining or maintaining an optimal body composition? And then on top of that, and this gets into um, what, what you're saying, Dr. Ladd, is that this idea of, okay, and are your vitals blood sugars, blood pressures, uh, blood labs, those kinds of things, also moving in optimal directions. And so yep. for me, if, if we have all three of those things lining up, then I can say, regardless of what I might feel about a vegan or vegetarian diet or whatever diet this person's doing or lifestyle, for me, I go, perfect. You know, got your biofeedback sensations, the subjective areas are good. We've got yep. the objective body composition is good. And then we've got your blood labs and vitals that seem to also be telling us that this is the right approach. And from my perspective, those three things are a good start. I'm wondering if you could think of any other areas that we might want to look at. Those kind of have, as a clinician, I bucket those things. That could be tough to do because there is trial and error in that, as you say. Yeah. But that's yeah. how I've always sort of thought about this. And of course, in, in that, in that the schmeck in check thing, biofeedback sensations, one of the main things with that is also signs and symptoms. If you were getting headaches and they're getting better, that's going to be a good thing. If you have joint pain and that's getting better, that's going to be a good yeah. thing. If you if the disease process is being allayed somehow and you're having less symptoms, that's yeah. potentially going to tell us something. You know, in this past half an hour of talking to you, I really love the way you think about things. I really love the way you approach 
your practice because you really look at it at a wholesome level. You don't think of snapshots. You don't think of um, just one direction or one dimension. You, you you literally think about what encompasses life, right? And, and I'm going to steal that schmack thing. And, and that is such a good... So it's it's sleep, hunger, emotion, mood, and craving, yeah? Yeah, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Sleep, hunger, mood, sleep, hunger, mood energy, and craving. Okay, yeah. got it. And um, it's sort of it's, a it's really phase. great. I appreciate I appreciate an expert like you saying that from a clinician's point of view. I, I would I, I'm excited the researcher finds that interesting. It's sort of a catch all phrase I use for all biofeedback sensations as well. Yeah. So yes, it's sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings. Yeah. But it's also exercise performance, exercise recovery, libido, menses, erections. You know, all of these things, signs and symptoms, etc. So I yeah. appreciate that, and I want to get into some of your deep expertise now. And this is really just something that uh, I think people will. I want to, I've been wanting to talk to an expert about this for some time. Um, certainly my first book I wrote back in 2010 and I leaned pretty heavily in that book on this hypothesis, the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. I leaned pretty heavy on that, uh, back in 2010. And now in 2022, 2023, I am uh, pretty convinced that I was completely wrong about that and that it's mostly about uh, calories. Although when I think of quality and quantity in food, I think they're equally important and pretty much inextricable. But I do know that at least in this world of nutrition and of medicine, there's a lot of still debate about this idea that insulin and carbohydrates are the cause of obesity. And this is mm -hmm. the insulin carbohydrate hypothesis. Many of my listeners are familiar with this. Um, yep. And I want to get your take on this and, you know, maybe just uh, give us a brief on what this hypothesis actually has you know, sort of said or I can do it if you prefer. And then I just want to know where you think the research is on this in terms of is insulin the primary thing that is driving obesity? Is it doing it independent of calories? Are calories what matters most? How do you, you know, sort of see this issue? of, you know, sort of insulin and carbohydrates and where everyone is still essentially talking about this? That, that, that is a very loaded question. Just, just to put it out there, <laughs> it's a multifaceted loaded question. Mm -hmm. So before I go into that, um, I just want to address a little bit uh, on our previous conversation because you asked me um, out of all the three areas, what other areas you could potentially monitor mm -hmm. to see if what you're doing is, is right. So I would add performance because if you are working out, if you're working on your strength, if you're working on, on endurance, those are objective metrics that you can easily measure um, to to really see whether or not this lifestyle is is good for you. Um, and another thing is is people are very fixated on uh, blood work. Some people are super fixated on blood work. It's like, oh, oh my god, I'm on keto, my LDL is high, and and you know I've got to change in this and that. Make sure you understand that blood work is essentially a snapshot, a snapshot of your metabolism. It's, it's by no means um, describing your entire flux of metabolism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, know that what you did right before you take the blood, you know, uh, is the sleep okay and everything. Like it really affects that snapshot. So, you know, talk to your physicians, talk to your experts that can really decipher and interpret your blood results for you. So that's that. And then back to your question on is insulin and carb, you know, uh, are they the, the culprit here? Mm -hmm. So what I always tell people is that because 
metabolism is not about a switching on or off thing. It's not a yes or no thing. It is a Goldilocks zone optimal amount thing. So we need insulin. Absolutely. We need insulin to control blood glucose. But if we have excess of glucose and glucose elevation for the entire day, then you get an elevation of insulin for the entire day. And that's when problem occurs because we're not made to do that. We're not meant to have high blood glucose throughout the day and high blood um, insulin throughout the day. You know, back in, in, in prehistoric um, uh, human beings, you know, you probably don't even have access to that much carbs and people are moving around hunting and they have, you know, they, they live on proteins and fats and, and they possibly fasting before they go for the next hunt as well, because, you know, they, they only hunt for what they, what they uh, need to, to eat because they have no storage system. Right. So in that sense, like our modern nutrition, quote unquote, modern nutrition is exposing us to physiological changes that was not there uh, in the past before in evolution sort of uh, point of view. And because of that, it's causing our metabolic pathways to go in a dysfunctional direction. So I would say the constant elevation of glucose and insulin are causing potentially inflammation. And of course, even if it's not blood glucose, if you have moderate glucose and high fat diet, that itself is signifies, you know, calorie excess, surplus of calories. So where does that surplus go to? It goes into storage, it, it, it accumulates as fat. So that increase in adipose tissue in research has been shown to increase um, adipokines and, and, and inflammation markers. And that also perpetuate the insulin resistance within your um, other organs, especially in, in, in muscles. So when that happens, you know, you are telling the body, hey, um, there is a lot of glucose. Muscles is not getting in glucose because it's insulin resistance, because insulin sends the signal says, pull in the glucose, metabolize it, create energy for movement. But your muscles are saying that, oh, the doors are, are locked. You know, I can't take in glucose. So it's sending the signal to the pancreas, which secretes insulin, says we might need more glucose. Uh, sorry, we might need more insulin because these glucose are still circulating in the blood. So they pump in more um, insulin. And, and then that cycle of, of that vicious cycle continues until to a point where your pancreatic beta cells start failing. And that's when you, you get, you know, diabetes and, and you have to inject insulin and, um, all your muscles are, are just haywire because it doesn't know what substrates to use. It doesn't know what substrate to pull in. And because of that, like it, it causes the whole myriad of, of metabolic dysfunction you know, obesity, increase in heart, heart disease, increase in uh, risk for diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, all of that are all linked together. It's not just one thing. It's not just, okay, carbs is bad for you. So if you avoid carbs, then everything will be solved. Like yeah. you still have to look at your calories. You still have to look at your um, physical activity. You, you have to look at your sleep. You know, people, of, uh, a lot of studies have already um, a, so, uh, a sort of um, attributed increased risk of um, cardiovascular disease and obesity with the lack of sleep or the too much sleep. You know, like I said, it's, it's our human body likes to work in an optimal zone. That's why when you look at enzymes and you look at hormones, 
even when they do it in vitro, meaning that they do it in cell cultures, they isolate them so that you can easily, you know, monitor the changes. You always have to provide the most optimal pH, the most optimal temperature in which they will behave optimally. Anything above or below that, it will cause a dysfunction, whether it doesn't work efficiently or it just work in a way that tries to compensate for that lack of optimalism and um and that may cause damage to the body that's perfect so let me just repeat uh what i think you said for you know and just maybe add a couple things and see if i'm getting this right so it sounds like what you're essentially saying is you're saying okay jade you can overeat carbohydrates and you can get this uh insulin excess insulin production that is not a good thing, not necessarily because insulin is high or low. It's that we don't want either of those situations. We kind of want insulin in this Goldilocks zone. A couple other things I'll add, and then you can kind of tell me if I get this right or well. My understanding is you can also be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant in certain tissues. So if you're insulin resistant in the liver, for example, that has a particular impact. You can be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant in the muscle that has an impact. Insulin is um, a hunger hormone, either directly through either because directly it, it signals of satiety in the brain and or through its impact on leptin. So there's lots going on <coughs> with insulin. So if we had insulin super low, then we wouldn't be able to get food into the body to begin with. Yeah. We might be hungry all the time. But when we yeah. have insulin super high, we also run into these other problems. Then you essentially said, well, Jade, also, if you started overeating fat, nothing but fat, but you were increasing calories and started to produce excess adipose tissue, that adipose tissue would start to send certain signals, some of those inflammatory in nature, which could then cause insulin resistance as a result of that, those inflammatory signals. And then one other thing I'll add here uh, is the impact of stress, which you alluded to with sleep. Stress and cortisol also can have a negative impact on insulin sensitivity. So in a sense... We are having multiple factors that can impact insulin. But the question that I just want to make sure that, uh, you know, the the listeners don't miss is if let's say you're insulin resistant and you have a lot of insulin in your system and you're not Mm going to think about cutting carbohydrates at all, but you don't have excess calories, you start to have a calorie deficit. With high insulin, will you still be able to lose weight if you're in a calorie deficit with high insulin or does that high insulin keep you from uh, losing weight or does it impact, for example, the percent of weight you might lose? I think I think it would definitely impact uh, the effect, but I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, the inter-individual variability. Mm. I think it depends on the person, right? And it depends on what sort of training program they're going through as well. Right. If they are doing some form of um, resistance training that could potentially increase insulin sensitivity in muscles, Mm -hmm. then potentially that could lower that insulin um, secretion and insulin elevation. And over time, with the calorie deficit, with the right workout, increasing insulin sensitivity, that may actually fix it. And and we have seen this many times. Um, for example, Verta Health have done amazing work in reversing diabetes using ketogenic diet and also lifestyle changes. So it's not impossible to achieve that, but you just need to know your body well enough to know what works for you and what works for you at this time. Because 
four months later, you might have to employ a different strategy because now your insulin sensitivity level is different. Your uh, weight is different. Your um, appetite is different. Your calorie intake is different. And because your weight is different, you need to adjust your, your, your calories um, accordingly as well. So there's no one size fits all solution. It's an ongoing process. It's a life journey um, the way I see it. And, and that's why I enjoy it. And that's why I love it because you don't know what's to come next. You know, you, you, you trying all these different things. And recently I've been doing my own, um, experiment on myself, um, on milk allergy because I cut out, um, dairy for a bit. And when I reintroduced it, I, I realized I had, you know, some minor hives and I was like, that's weird. I mean, is it, is it milk? So I was like trying to do an elimination process and trying to figure out, is it, just milk or is it cheese is it everything dairy and it turns out cheese doesn't have a lot of problem with it um my protein powder which is a combination of whey casein and milk isolate didn't give me any problem mm. but drinking milk does ah, so it's it's super interesting and and you know now i'm like trying to troubleshoot so how can i i fix it do i introduce milk little by little again or do i avoid it altogether. Uh, I'm still figuring that out. And um, I, I've been trying to look around on the science. There's not much, there's a lot more on um, infants, infant milk allergy, but but not adults. So I've been talking to different individuals, different contacts that I have who are, you know, clinicians and and people who have been dealing with allergy all their lives. So if you have any any opinion, please, please. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm all ears. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. This is this is a question that comes up for me a lot, where people bring up food uh, allergies and food sensitivities. And you you kind of alluded to this. Typically, that's a food sensitivity reaction. The other thing okay. that's interesting is the the testing <laughs> uh, that you do for food sensitivities is really not regarded by most of us who who are up on this in the functional medicine world as reliable. And so, the only real way to do this is exactly what Dr. Manser did, where he's basically taking the food, eliminating it for a time, adding it back in, and then looking at these biofeedback uh, sensations. This is exactly the way that I would do this in clinic because I don't regard, um, and I've run thousands of those food sensitivity tests at one point, I don't right. regard them as accurate uh, in determining what you're actually uh, sensitive to. And I don't know if you have anything to say on that, but, but you know, I think we've lost, uh, there used to be, you know, 10 years back, I was thinking, oh, IgG reactions versus IgE reactions. And now yeah. it looks like, you know, these IgG reactions really aren't telling us what we thought it, it was, they were telling us about uh, immune function. And so at this point, without knowing more, this sort of allergy elimination or food sensitivity uh, elimination diet and adding back in is also the way um, that I would do this as well. So that's exactly the, the process um, that I would use. And I, and I do think it has a lot to do with and this actually comes uh, back into sort of your expertise as well. I do think it has a lot to do with, for example, milk, uh, especially high fat milk is also a, a pretty significant source of estrogen and progesterone, bovine uh, sex steroids. So that might be mm -hmm. playing a role here. Fat is really interesting because fat is something that lipopolysaccharide LPS, you know, that little, you know, endotoxin that sits around in our gut can they, that LPS can jump on the fat from milk and perhaps be driven into the system and cause inflammatory reactions. And so when I'm looking at certain foods that might be causing reactions, I'm looking at those kinds of things. I'm saying, what mm -hmm. could this be doing uh, to trigger inflammatory reactions that aren't just simply about, you know, the IgE or IgG yeah. mediated reaction. So I look at these inflammatory mechanisms and actually one thing I'll, 
I'll tell you and, and see, I'll, I'll give you my theory on why it happens because you're the expert in, in keto diets. One of the things that I noticed <laughs> when I used to put people on keto diets, um, certain types, these would typically be the people who were fairly obese, diabetics, you know, obviously they tend to respond very well to keto diets. But one of the things I yeah. saw in a significant subset of these individuals is the keto diet would essentially cause, you know, this keto flu. And, and by the keto yeah. flu, when I talk about it, it, it feels like the flu. They had aches and pains, almost like they were uh, waking up, uh, you know, after uh, a hard set workout or had the flu. And one of the things that I thought is that most of these people were eating high carbohydrate diets, obviously increasing those gram negative bacteria mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the, the ones containing the LPS. And all of a sudden when you dump a lot of fat into that system, that LPS yeah. can get you know, sort of put into the body and cause this sort of mild endotoxemia. This is the way that I've always seen it. Now, after a little bit of time, that goes away and they tend to get yeah. results. But for some, it was a pretty severe reaction. And that's, I'm not sure that that's the mechanism that's going on, but uh, it's certainly something I've seen. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. And if, if you all at home, if we just got a little too technical for you, let me just briefly tell them, Dr. Messer, what LPS is just, it's, it's sort of like these little bacteria live in your gut. And when they die, it's almost like they're wearing these fur coats. And when they die, they shed these fur coats. And that, those fur coats then can get brought into our systems and cause inflammatory reactions. We call this LPS or endotoxin. It used to be thought that this LPS could not pass through the system. And if it did, you'd get you know septicemia. But now we know trace amounts can, and they have reactions. So my question to you is, do you think this is something that's going on? Do you know much about this? Do you think keto diets are predisposed to this in the short run and you know maybe help in the long run? Is there any hints you can give us about this? Because it's always been interesting for me as a clinician to see this. <sighs> Yeah, I think I think that's definitely that definitely could be one of the mechanism that drives it. Um, another well-known mechanism is that when you switch on keto diet, you are essentially shedding all your glycogen stores um, because you are cutting out carbs. You know, very restricting um, restrictive amount of carbs every day. Therefore, your glycogen stores will then diminish. But glycogens are known to store water, and with water, we also store a lot of our salts. So when you lose that large amount of water and glycogen, you're losing a lot of um, different um, micronutrients like you know sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. And those salts, um, those ions are also very important for you know, neurotransmitters, um, uh, for all sorts of um, transportations of molecules within cells. So when that happens, you know, the body is trying to compensate or the body is trying to send signals to you that, hey, something abnormal is happening right now, something dysfunctional is happening, um, do something about it, right? Or the body is doing something about it. And inflammation is a response when there is something abnormal happening in the body, right? Whether it's a... Um, foreign invasion virus bacteria or inside um where it's too high amount of fat you know like we talked about too high amount of insulin for too long um too high amount of glucose for too long that sort of thing so you know it, it should be a combination of, of, of factors that cause that keto flu but also remember every time we switch to a new diet we switch to a new lifestyle there is always a big change in the body that the body needs time to adapt and if you know, inflammation is one way of the body to adapt. And, and there are some research that shows 
the change in microbiome uh, um, in your gut as well. And, and that itself could also cause inflammation uh, in the short term because um, of the swap over in, in the microbiome as well. Um, and, and that's why I always tell people to be mindful of labeling certain thing or demonizing th certain thing. It's one thing when it comes to virus or bacteria, we can say, okay, COVID is bad. You know, we know that, right? But when we talk about, oh, mTOR is bad, insulin is bad, leptin is bad, ghrelin is bad, or like, or something is good. It's not necessarily that. You have to look at it in, in a much more wholesome picture where, okay, elevated insulin for a long time is bad. Um, not necessarily insulin on its own is the dysfunctional level of insulin because all these hormones exist in our body for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. we, we evolve to a point where we need all these different hormones, every each single one of them to function properly in order to be healthy and in order for us to function properly. So when there is something that goes out of whack, that's when um, things go wrong. And, you know, traditionally in medicine, we figure out what that is, what, what is going wrong. And then we, we pinpoint that. And then we straight away say, you know, oh, that's the bad thing. Not necessarily true. So I think if there's any takeaway from this, like go back and look at different biomarkers, different hormones differently. You know, you want all of them to function properly, but you don't want to eliminate them or in increase them unnecessarily. Yeah, one of the things I've seen in this space is what I would call mechanism chasers. They're people who learn a biochemical mechanism. They don't know many other biochemical mechanisms. And so they treat it almost like a bow and arrow hitting a target and they go, everything yeah. must fit this biochemical yeah. mechanism, but it's not a bow and arrow hitting a target. It's more like a spider's web or a symphony and all these yeah. things are working together. I often say, you know, hormones in particular are, are sort of like people, they behave differently depending on who they're socializing with. So for example, in, in exercise, you have high cortisol and that's not a problem. You want high cortisol levels during exercise. It just tends to come along with also high amounts of human growth hormone and testosterone and insulin sensitivity versus when you're sitting at home, sitting on the couch, now cortisol and insulin are primarily, you know, um, having, you know, <laughs> dinner together or socializing together. And that creates yeah. a different sort of outcome. So we're running up on time. We got about 15 minutes. I'm loving this conversation. Let me ask you about something that um, I noticed when I was reading a little bit about you. You talk about the idea that and I love this because it, when we talk about metabolism and you have people who are experts in metabolism. Most people want to talk about metabolism as fast or slow. They want to talk yeah. about stimulating metabolism or boosting yeah. metabolism. And one of the things that you talk about is this idea of metabolic flexibility. It's something I talk about as well, where I oftentimes say we don't necessarily want a fast metabolism. We want a flexible, responsive, adaptive metabolism, which is correct. Really what metabolism is when we think about it, it is a uh, responding uh, you know, sensing and responding apparatus. And so we want it to be able to sense appropriately and respond appropriately. So one mm -hmm. of the things I want to ask you about in this realm is uh, if you could talk a little bit about this idea of, you know, how true is it to talk about metabolism or fast as fast or slow? And if that is the case, how come we can see certain things like cold plunges and exercise, certain these things can certainly speed up metabolism and even increase fat burning in the long run. But then when we look at actually controlled trials of these things over weeks, they don't necessarily seem to deliver us weight loss results. And a lot of people, uh, 
you know, sort of are confused by this. I wonder if you can just set me straight and set the listener straight a little bit on this idea of how should we be looking at metabolism? Should we be trying to speed it up, slow it down, make it more flexible? How do you, you know, sort of have this conversation in your head based on the research you've done? Yeah. Um, so it's funny you mentioned that because we have been in conferences before where we, you know, have samples of exogenous ketones of ketone IQ. And people would ask me, it's like, so as a research lead, do you think this ketone IQ can make my metabolism faster? And I'm like, oh boy, where do I start with that, that question, right? So when people talk about fast and slow metabolism, essentially they just want to know, will I be able to burn calories fast and a lot of calories given the amount of food and given the lifestyle that I have? I think that's the, the general understanding, right? But most importantly, a lot of people associate that with just exercise. Like you said, if you exercise two hours a day, right? There's still 22 hours in the day that you're not exercising. Those are the hours that actually matter even more because that, that contributes to your basal metabol metabolic rate, that the non-exercise and energy expenditures, um, increasing those activities like standing up, walking, walking around, you know, between breaks of your work. And those are the things that actually increase, quote unquote, increase your metabolism, but it's actually increasing your energy expenditure. When you increase your energy expenditure, you, you put yourself in a calorie deficit. So that is matched with your calories, right? So even if you increase your energy expenditure, but if you're eating a lot of calories, that still means calorie surplus. And, and on top of that, you know, we can also talk about what kind of calories, you know, certain foods will then induce certain response of hormones, right? Um, high carbs food obviously induce high insulin. And how would that make you make you feel, right? If you feel sluggish, if you feel fatigued, then you feel less motivated to go work out, right? You also have, to, it's not just calorie in, calorie out. Yes, fundamentally is fundamentally it is calorie in, calorie out. When you have calorie surplus, you will, you know, tend to put on more fat and, and storage. When you have calorie deficit, you tend to burn more and, and lose weight. But ultimately also what kind of food you eat also affect your microbiome, it affects your mood, affect your sleep, and affect your hormones, your stress hormones, and all that. And that would also affect the activity you do. And then it, it goes around, right? Your activity and then, and then your food. So in terms of metabolic flexibility, this is exactly why we pitch about metabolic flexibility, because you want your body to react to a stimulus that you put your body through at that time in the most optimal manner. Which means if you're doing, ex uh, for example, if you're doing endurance exercise, you want your body to tap into that, that, that um, glycogen stores, that, you know, um, uh, fat source, because you're going on a constant pace, fat can, you know, continuously give you that, that um, energy that you need. But when you go into like high intensity workouts, when you go into resistance training, you want your body to swap over to glucose because nothing beats glycolysis in providing oxygen independent ATP, which is energy, um, to fuel that sort of high intensity workouts. So when your body is that good at swapping, you know, to the optimal fuel, one, you perform optimally. Two, your body is able to then, you know, use whatever is necessary and store only whatever that's necessary. So that signal 
that your muscle is sending to your brain, is sending to your storage, is sending to your liver, um, it's all in sync so that you are in the optimal zone. Sorry to break into the show, but I wanted to take a second to cover one of our sponsors and tell you all about Paleo Valley at paleovalley.com. These are the grass-fed sticks that I tell you all so much about that all of my friends know I have on hand constantly. They are in my car. They are at my house. I keep them at my sister's home and my parents' house. I have these things everywhere because they are the simplest, most convenient whole foods protein supplement you can get. Almost like carrying around pure protein, low-carb protein in your pocket. They also, these Paleo Valley beef sticks, are the only the only 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef sticks on the market. They use organic spices. They are naturally fermented instead of using nitrates and nitrites that can be a problem in some of these cured meats. And they simply taste fantastic. Check out the original or the jalapeno. Those are my favorites. Please make sure you go over to paleovalley.com and visit when checking out, use the code next level for a 15% discount. Remember, our sponsors keep the show going by you giving them your patronage and spending your money on these high quality products. You actually do a few things. One, you're helping to support the podcast. And two, you are helping your health. And three, you are making sure that good quality companies like Paleo Valley can be out there doing their business, changing the world, making the earth better. One of the things you may not know about this is that grass-fed organic and grass-finished beef is doing something that is so utterly important for our environment, actually helping to repopulate the topsoil. A lot of people don't know this, but our topsoil is being extremely depleted. And raising animals, especially cattle, the correct way helps to get that topsoil back. This is one of the reasons why I love Paleo Valley, not to mention it tastes fantastic. But they're one of these companies, like my other sponsors, Cured Nutrition and Organifi, that are doing the right things by the environment. I really appreciate everything they do, and I hope you will check them out. Thanks so much. PaleoValley.com. Use the code NEXTLEVEL. And now, back to the show. I love that answer. And, and here's another question for you about that. So um, would you say, and especially I want to talk a little bit about these exogenous ketones here in just a second, but would you say that uh, female and male metabolism is uh, any different in this regard? For example, how is estrogen uh, you know, and progesterone in the female menstrual cycle? I know this can be a tricky thing to study because when you're looking at women, you would have to match menstrual cycles in order to you know, sort of really get this in and or understand where they are, follicular phase versus luteal phase. But I'm wondering from your perspective, how you see any differences just generally in metabolism from men to women. I oftentimes talk about the idea that, you know, uh, men and women, the female metabolism is a little bit more, I don't know how to say it, maybe refined and sensitive. They are, after all, the gender of childbearing and the estrogen and progesterone <coughs> these fluctuations do kind of put them in different metabolic states, one half of the month. To the other half of the month and certainly go through different lifestyle stages, you know, based on these hormones. I'm wondering if you have any, uh, you know, sort of insight on this from the research perspective and how keto diets might be impacting women versus men differently 
um, what the menstrual cycle, you know, uh, how it impacts it, any of those, those things. I'm just curious. I think a lot, um, a lot more studies these days that came out that showed the differences between genders, um, between males and females. And I think I, I listened to a podcast before and, and they were saying like, you know, females are not tiny males, mm. you know, um, just because, and they do react differently to different lifestyle interventions, different diet interventions. So um, one thing that at least in animal work that I've done during my PhD, the, the whole reason of us selecting male only rats um, is because of that. It's because of the fluctuation of hormones during menstrual cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to deal with that, especially when it comes to diabetes, because during that hormonal fluctuation, you see a fluctuation of like glucose and, 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 homo- and other hormones and insulin as well. So we want to induce a type 2 diabetic rat. We want something that is stable so that we know for a fact that it is the high fat diet and it's the drug that makes the rat diabetic and not um, working synergistically in some manner with the hormones. So yes, to, to that point, um, we need more gender specific studies that look at different stages of, of menstrual cycle and how that affects females um, because we have a lot of male driven and male focused um, studies already. So we know what works within the male population, but now we need more sort of female population and see how that impacts them. And, you know, is that, for example, there are, there is a study on ketogenic diet that affects postmenopausal women differently to premenopausal women. So even that within those two demographics is already different. So let alone, you know, comparing men and women. So yeah. one of the things I'm not sure, you know, but one of the things about my work is that um, I mostly worked with women and mostly saw these differences uh, very mm-hmm. early on in my career. And, I, and I've gotten a lot of um, a lot of love and a lot of hate from, you know, making that distinction over 10 years ago, saying, look, we really need to treat women differently. I mean, obviously estrogen is highly insulin sensitized. And so if estrogen <laughs> yeah. is around, that's going to play a role. And when it exactly. falls away at menses, that's going to play or, you know, at menopause, uh, postmenopause, that's going to play a role. And I think, you know, this isn't completely sort of worked out yet, but it's interesting. One thing I didn't know is I did not know that uh, about the, the laboratory rats. Is that kind of standard across the board when you're doing diabetes stuff where you decide we're going to use uh, male rats only to take these estrogen and progesterone sort of things out of this out of the picture generally yes yeah. most most importantly yes so because if you're already dealing with animal animals uh, models um the whole reason of dealing with animal models because it's it's, it's more convenient compared to clinical trials obviously yeah. um you don't have to go through irb you don't have to go through ethics uh, uh, committee and all that but um if you're already choosing that route why not, you know, eliminate all the other variables to, I mean, when it comes to science, right? At the end of the day, we are essentially doing an elimination process. When we investigate certain things, we're doing an elimination process. We're trying to eliminate all the variables that may affect our results. And then we introduce variables that we think may affect the results so that we can for sure say that, okay, X, Y, Z is what's causing a certain disease or X, Y, Z is what's um, improving certain conditions. Yeah. So that's a great, so well, the let's, more, let's, the more variables you can to, uh, the more variables you can eliminate. We the hundred percent. Well, let's, let's take the last five minutes or so and talk a little bit about, um, 
I'm curious about the idea of exogenous uh, ketones. I've heard all. So just for the listener that, that understands. So you can, you know, go on a particular diet and entice your body, usually a very low carb diet, you know, carbohydrates, usually less than 10 percent, 5 percent. You're talking maybe 30 grams to 50 grams of total carbohydrate. And you can stimulate. You also have to have your protein relatively moderate because you can have gluconeogenic uh, you know, amino acids. But typically we can do this through diet where we can turn on uh, ketone production. It can have many beneficial things. We know the science has been in the last 10 years has just yeah. been huge in this area. Uh, one of the things you also can do is you can take ketones. This is from an outside source, exogenous. So one of the things Dr. Latt studies is he studies exogenous ketones and how they impact our body. So what is the benefit here? Because, you know, one of the things I know about ketones is ketones can be muscle sparing. Ketones can be hunger suppressing. Ketones yep. can have um, lots and lots of different uh, far ranging impacts on metabolism, mainly very good impacts since we don't spend a whole lot of time in ketosis the way we did as historical yep. man. Are yep. we seeing the same thing when we take these exogenous sources? Should somebody who is not an athlete, just a regular person who wants to be healthy, consider taking exogenous ketones and and how do they work and, and why might they be beneficial? Yeah. Um, so the answer is yes and yes. But and this is not just me being employed by HVMN. It's it's literally what the research has shown. Right. So a research showing uh, brain network stability, for example, in aging adults, they put people on ketogenic diet for a week and they give them exogenous ketone for one dose. Both the groups showed improved brain network stability within the uh, functional MRI uh, compared to placebo. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you are getting, because ketones are ketones are ketones. It's the same molecule. It's, it's the same thing that is getting metabolized and sending signals to your body um, in order to get the benefits. Now, the difference is, yes, exogenous ketones can only keep you in ketosis for X number of hours before you have to top up again. Mm -hmm. um, so when you say, you know, what type of people may be beneficial in, in taking this? Um, anyone really, even if you're on ketogenic diet, because a lot of people, a lot of our customers was like, you know, I'm taking, I'm, I'm doing a ketogenic diet to lose weight. I'm doing ketogenic diet to do, to get cognitive benefits. So why should I take exogenous ketones when I can make my own? And the answer is you don't have to. If you're already in ketosis, if you're already making your own ketones, go for it. Like, like enjoy that lifestyle and, and, and reap all the benefits. But if you feel like you can benefit from increasing that ketone, bumping that ketone levels, which is blood BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, a little bit more, then use it as a supplement. Mm. So what I always tell people is that, first of all, you have to dial in on your lifestyle, your nutrition, your physical activity, your sleep, you know, and then you take in supplements to further enrich that. So this is the exogenous ketone that I'm talking about. I use exogenous ketone to enrich my lifestyle that I, I already like, you know, work so hard to get in place first. Um, and that is also why, you know, some people prefer to take it if they cannot do a ketogenic diet. For example, they love carbs too much. Or for example, they have family and, and if they do it themselves, they have to cook for their family and they, they can't and, and it's just less flexible. Exogenous ketones provide that flexibility. Um, for our $6 million contract with the Department of Defense, for example, with the military, you can't make the military go on ketogenic diet, all of them, 
you know, just to get that benefit, that cognitive benefit, right? So this is the best solution for them because you get that boost for a few hours, like when you need it, you know, on demand. And you get both the physical and, and cognitive benefits. And we saw an improvement in um, adaptation to hypoxia on top of that. So that is huge when it comes to operations in high altitude, for example. And if you can make faster reactions, you can make better decisions, and you can um, you know, really be on point and focus um, just by drinking a shot of exogenous ketone versus having to put them on ketogenic diet for a few weeks before they get into ketosis. That's, that's where the value comes in. Yeah. Right. So you want, and, and also for people who haven't done keto diet, thinking about it and want to sort of feel how it would feel like to be in ketosis or to have ketones in your body, have a shot, you know, have that feel. Like uh, one of my friends literally texted me, I sent a bottle to them um, last week in New York and he just texted me this morning. He was like, yeah, I feel focused, but in a calm way. And that's a, a common feel because when people say focus and alert, they think of coffee, they think of stimulant mm-hmm. and people expect like jittery feeling. People expect like, I want to go, I want to, you know, my heart is pumping, but this is more of a calming feel, but you can still focus. Um, and I, I usually drink it before our podcast and I, I did drink a shot right before this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps wire my brain to my mouth so that it's mm-hmm. very coherent. My thoughts and what's coming out, it's coherent, you know, and, and consistent. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Let, let me ask a couple of questions related to that. You know, typically when we're in ketosis, um, we should have, you know, sort of low blood sugars and high ketones. So glucose yeah. is typically low, ketones are high. As a matter of fact, one of the things we do clinically is we look to see if someone is, is having problems. We go, is glucose high and ketones high? Not a good thing yeah. to have. What we want is as ketones go up. We want the yeah. glucose to go down and you can even see yeah. very low glucose values with high ketones. Some people are like, am I going to be hypoglycemic? I've yeah. seen values at 40 and 50 blood sugar levels, but the ketones yeah. are keeping them functional. And so when for these to work, um, are they still working if the glucose is high? So for example, if I eat, you know, wake up and have, you know, some, you know, some uh, breakfast cereal and then take my shot of ketones. Am I still getting some of the benefits or are they sort of wiped out? That's a very interesting question. Um, now, um, as you said, physiologically, it's impossible to have both high glucose and high ketone mm-hmm. without exogenous ketone, right? So that's, that's, that's why a lot of people are like concerned. So is this, you know, this is an abnormal physiological state. Is this okay? Um, in fact, it is more than okay because we have seen it in performance athletes um, where they use dual fuel where they have a dual fuel system and they would have carbs and exogenous ketones and that has glycogen sparing effects. So for endurance athletes, they found themselves being able to push themselves further because they have that dual fuel. And what we have seen in terms of organ specific, we look at the brain and the heart, even with the presence of glucose, fat and ketones, um, the fat and, and uh, sorry, the brain and the, the, the heart they take in ketones proportional to the availability of ketones. Mm. So for those of you listeners, certain uh, every organ, we need certain transporters to transport these molecules into the cells. So we need glucose transporters, glutes. If you have heard of glute one, glute four, 
Um, those are, uh, you know, very prevalent in the heart. So you need to transport the glucose via glutes. You need to transport fat, fatty acids using um, fat trans fatty acid transporters. Uh, CD36 is one of them. And ketones also need transporters, um, which they share the same transporter as lactate, which is monocarboxylase transporter. What we have seen in research is that at some point, the transporters get saturated for fats and glucose. So they'll go up, go up, you know, and even at a very high level of glucose, it will still plateau out because the transporters are saturated. What we have seen in ketones, for example, um, surprisingly, is that it keeps going up. Maybe in the research, in the protocol, they haven't got high enough glucose to plateau. But even when ketones are present, um, the heart is ticking in ketones without affecting the other uptakes of, of the other substrates. So that is very interesting. So you're essentially providing your important organs like, you know, brain and heart, the extra fuel that you need um, for whatever activity that you're doing. So yeah. I would say like use, I think exogenous ketone can benefit everyone, but use it in the right use cases. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. So uh, let's go through a couple of those use cases, then I'll let you go because I want to be aware of your time. But you're just it's just really nice to have you on here. So uh, one of the things I would think of ketones certainly have hunger suppressant activity. So are these exogenous ketones able to help us with things like hunger and cravings? And have you seen that? Yeah. Okay, so cool. I personally use it myself. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I do Omand, which is one meal a day. Um, and usually I'll have ketone the night before. So Technically one meal a day, but I, I'm still consuming calories from ketones uh, during the night. Um, but after that, it, it keeps me, you know, perfectly satiated until the next day lunch. Yeah. So some you people know, use it to prolong things, their fast. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And not only prolong your fast, but, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, that you look at in the research is you can see that even small amounts of calories up to 500 calories in a day, you still get some of those fasting benefits metabolically. So I imagine if you were someone who struggled with <coughs> fasting and you took these exogenous ketones as sort of, you know, like a fasting beverage, you're going to get very little calories, but you're going to get some yeah. of this boost. And I imagine it would be um, effective here. Is there any other things that, uh, you know, uh, you find interesting that these things do that not a lot of people are talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the common use cases are, um, you know, fasting, appetite suppression, um, performance, where people take it before workout, they'll take, you know, one, two dose um, with carbs, um, not replacing the carbs uh, or any pre-workout you have. Um, I sometimes take it for um, recovery as well. So, so it, it doubles up as a recovery and hunger suppressant because um, studies have shown that taken with ketones, I mean, sorry, taken Exogenous ketones taken with carbohydrate and protein um, increases mTOR activation protein synthesis after workout. So, mm -hmm. so that definitely helped with recovery as well. Um, most people use it for just the cognitive benefit, just the focus in the day. Have it one in the morning, um, if especially if they're fasting, they, it really keeps their you know uh, mind in a tip-top condition, mm -hmm. uh, and then they can continue their fast as well. Uh, and that's very interesting what you just pointed out, like 500 calories, because, um, you know, fast mimicking diet, um, uh, it's around like 500, 500 calories. And, and yeah. you know, at first I thought, you know, that's just a calorie restriction and not really a fast 
um, per se. So I think there is a, a, a certain leeway of a threshold of what is considered fasting to your body um, yeah. and what is considered calorie restriction. So. Yeah, and I'm sure with that, with those, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much autophagy, which I know is somewhat controversial anyway, you know, we know it happens yeah. in rats. We don't know how much it's happening in humans, but there are other things that, um, you know, that, 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 you know, maybe having no calories at all might help you get into autophagy faster or something like that. But yeah, that's why I usually tell people if they fast in order to lose weight or in order to eat less, then yes, exogenous ketones can definitely help. Mm. Um, but if they're fasting to achieve autophagy, mm. do keep in mind that ketone IQ, for example, has calories. It has mm. 70 calories per dose. But if you think about it, though, 70 calories, you can burn off in like, you know, nothing. You know especially yeah. if you're exercising on top of, of being or fasting a long time to get the autophagy, it will just help you um, yeah. feel less hung hungry. I've been becoming more and more interested. I've tried uh, exogenous ketones in the past. I had really good effects uh, with them. I don't know why I stopped. Uh, you know, have um, you had samples from ketone? Ketones? I haven't had samples from you all yet. No, I have not. Um, but oh, I certainly, oh, yeah. I certainly, you know, having this conversation with you certainly makes me go, oh yeah, you know, those used to be really, really useful uh, for me in in many ways. And that's when I was fasting a lot. Actually, I was using them right. in the same way that you're using them, but. I'll tell you what, Dr. Latmanser, thank you so much for being here. I mean, you're just a brilliant guy, incredibly generous. I'm, I'm so uh, grateful for your expertise. Where do people find you? How can they get uh, you know, more involved with your work and keep up with you? You can go to our website at www.hvmn.com and HVMN on all handles on all social media. And you can find me personally, Latmanso, L-A-T-T-M-A-N-S-O-R on Twitter and Instagram. So, and I do also do weekly IGs um, Monday morning and Thursday mornings with our affiliates who are experts in gut health and, and metabolism just to have a more informal session for half an hour and engage with our customers and listeners. Just, you know, whatever questions they have, come on and, and, and just ask. That's great. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to follow you, my friend. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being here and Same hanging here. out on the show with us. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Jade.